0: My name is Andy McIntyre, I'm co-founder with Tony Faulkner of VSI Executive Education. We are thrilled to be working in partnership with Frank McKenna and his fabulous team at Downtown in Business on a series of 10 podcasts focusing the business of sport. We'll be engaging with some of the industry's most influential figures at a time when the English Premier League in particular has become a truly global force. Delighted to have Wes Morgan here today with me for the VSI Downtown in Business podcast. Leads very little introduction, really. The man who famously lifted the Premier League title in 2015 16 when Leicester shocked the world. He's also an FA Cup winner at Leicester City. But there's a piece of music that I know is iconic with the Leicester fans, might also be associated with Italian 90. But Wes, tell me about that piece of music and the day that you lifted the trophy.
1: Yeah, um if was lucky enough to make it to <clears throat> the final well one of the final games the probably one of the I say the more pivotal games which is the the game when we actually lifted the trophy. Um Botticelli came and, and sang and it was an iconic moment, um, a fantastic day and you'll see constantly reminders of that day, and that's one of the biggest highlights of of the day, you know, because obviously what he sung and and the voice and how special it was, and the occasion, you know, it all went into such an amazing, not just the whole process of the build up to that day, but just the amazing moment in general. So as a player, when you left uh,
0: Nottingham Forest, did you realise that you were about to become part of a very special history
1: for Leicester City but for the Premier League absolutely not you know um, my time at Nottingham Forest was um, was long um, didn't really reach the kind of personal goals and um, ambitions that I wanted, which was to, to play in the Premier League. Because you're a Nottingham boy? Yeah, Nottingham boy, uh, born and bred. And to play for, you know, your hometown, when your family and friends or sport, you know, Nottingham Forest, which is a big club in itself, is um, such a honour and uh, a big achievement. You know, I grew up not too far from the, from the ground. I could hear the roar when a goal went in at the city round. And, um, you know, to be on the pitch and to play so many games, I could have never imagined that, you know, playing over 400 games for your hometown club. Because that was a club that was a disruptor in itself,
0: wasn't it? When Brian Clough came there and took them from the the old second division into the first division and then winning the European Cup. So you've kind of been around history and and disruptors in sport.
1: Yeah, you know, Nottingham Forest is is, um, stoked with rich history, you know, winning the European uh, which winning so much, you know, titles and having so much glory. When you go to the matches, you can see it all the um, accolades labeled around uh, the stadium side. And it's fantastic to see and, you know, unfortunately, my time at Forest didn't really uh, reach the the heights that we would have liked to, Um, you know, my time there um, got relegated to League One, spent three years there, and um, then got promoted back into the to the championship. Um but never quite got into the Premier League, which is, you know, where, where a team like Nottingham Forest deserves to be. You know, so for my personal ambitions to to try and get into the Premier League and at that time looking at Nottingham Forest and, you know, where they was going, I didn't think it was possible. So that's when I made the decision to to move and Leicester came calling. So, so it's interesting because Nottingham as a city was really put on the map, on the global map,
0: by their success in the European Cup as it was then. You moved to another club where you were an instrumental part of putting them on the global map. Tell me about your first days there and, and, and that journey at Leicester that culminated in so much success.
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> to try and you know, sum it up, my um, kind of time there. Um, it's funny because I had nine and a half years at Nottingham Forest and nine and a half years at Leicester, um, equally, uh, before retiring. That's some, some career, twenty years. <laughs> yeah, I know. Looking back, I don't know where the time's gone. You know, it's happened. <laughs> How's your body now? Well, you know what? It's better than it was when I just before I finished, yeah, um, and that's because it's rest and recovered. But yeah, you know, obviously it's a bit controversial going over from Nottingham to Leicester. Um, I don't think the the Leicester fans welcomed me with with you know fully open arms uh, because of the rivalry, which is understandable. Yeah. Um, Saul Campbell well, would know all about that. Well, there you go. You know he's probably a, a lot worse than than mine. I'd say, but you know I felt like uh, you know won over the fans eventually um, yeah. with my performances and my displays on the pitch and the way I carried myself. Um, I was given the captain's armband six months after. <laughs> joining the club, which, you know, which is an honour. That's a really fascinating thing because,
0: you know, one of the things that both downtown and business and VSI are all about is leadership. And you were clearly identified early in your time at uh, Leicester as a natural leader. Tell tell me what it was that you think they saw in you that persuaded them to make,
1: what would be a bold move to make a former Forest player their captain? Um, Yeah, you know, um, like I said, it's a bit of a surprise at the time um, but Nigel Pearson was the manager at the time and um, I think he's seen a lot of you know characteristics that he had in me um, just the way I kind of lead by example on the pitch um, how I support my teammates um, try and make everyone feel welcome but at the same time demand you know the best from, from our players and, and I think the way I probably deliver myself in terms of what I expect from from my own teammates on, on the pitch, on the training field, and how I um, illustrate that. I think that, you know, those type of things was what Nigel Pearson um, gave him the, the, the nod to think, you know what, I need to change a captain, Wes is the the guy. So you know, it was a, a surprise, but it was an honour at the same time. and. Yeah, you know, I, f- I felt, you know, I was captain for nine years after that um, and I felt, I didn't feel the pressure, I didn't feel like I had to do anything different from what I normally did. I think that was one of the the things that Nigel liked, you know, I'm not going to change my character and start acting a, a different type of way and start shouting and screaming for the sake of it. Um, you know, pretty much doing what I would have done if I didn't have the armband and that's just, you know, stand up and be counter, lead by example, make sure everyone is, is doing their jobs and just demanding the best from every individual. Tell me the circumstances of how he made you captain. Did he pull you into his office? and? Yeah. Um, I remember, um, you know, there's many meetings throughout the week. Um, normally towards the end of the week, you'd be, you will know, be talking about the opposition, um, how we're going to play um, and then talking tactics. You know, and I remember before, one of the um, Friday meetings before game, Saturday, um, he pulled me in and um, they just said, where's changing the captain? Um, And I want you to be the captain for the season, you know? So this is during, before the season started, Um, I think before one of the games, or friendly games, and he just announced, well, he told me personally and privately, I'll be the captain. uh, And then announced it to everybody after in a meeting, you know, so, yeah, that's how it came about. Because so we talk in business and in sport about culture, and culture just doesn't happen overnight, does it?
0: So you've, you've seen a process that led to really extraordinary success and sustainable success. So t- tell me about those early days and, and what were the key red lines for you and for the club in terms of player behaviours and and your approach to, to play
1: yeah, I think, you know, some of the key things I'd mention would be um I think when you got a team, everyone has to, the way I describe it, die for each other, especially on the pitch. Um so to have that togetherness is is very important. How do you create that togetherness? And that's the spending time together, you know, really getting to know each other. And we spent a lot of time. We had a close-knit um set of guys. We spent, you know, many nights obviously many days on the training field but we'll make the effort to spend time off the field you know whether that be going for something to eat going for a drink whatever that might be and i think that brought us so close so when it came down to you know being on the pitch and you know our backs against the walls i knew i could turn around at everyone and and i can count on them and when you're not playing the best you still can pick up the wins because everyone is fighting hard and you get through it together now, the manager actually didn't see the journey all the way through, did he? But I've
0: heard people say that he was pivotal in creating much of the success that you enjoyed when you when you really did win the league. Would that be a view that you subscribe to?
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, Nigel and his stuff, you know, Craig Shakespeare, um, Steve Walsh, you know, laid the foundation for me. Um, and once that foundation was there, anybody that kind of joined into what we built um, brought into the same ideas, uh, got introduced the same type of way and knew what it was all about. You know, and we got that core, anything that gets added into it, you know, it's, it's just a bonus. Mm. And yeah, like you mentioned, Nigel didn't last the, the full term, the full journey of what we went on to fully success, um, fully, um, you know, make ourselves and, and be successful. But at the same time, you know, I always refer back to he laid the foundation, he laid the core. And um, what happened after that um, when we actually got our, our accolades and yeah. um, our success, um, definitely down to him. He had his input in it.
0: Along with his staff, as you, as you yeah. quite rightly identify. Yeah. Tell me, when you had a new manager come in, that could have really disrupted um, the success because under Nigel, you'd had a, a great run at the end of his final season. I think you've gone 11 games on beaten. Um, new manager comes in, known as the Tinkerman. So we were anticipating that maybe he's going to be making changes. What, what, what did he do differently, if anything?
1: You know, um, like I already mentioned, you know, the foundation's already you know, been set and laid. And I felt Claudio, you know, to his credit, what he did was not to disrupt what was already there. So so that's intelligent almost, of him then, isn't it? Yeah, right exactly. You know... Um,
0: it's not broke, that.
1: There you go. Um, and there's a couple of key players I must mention that that got added to the team. You know, Matt, uh, N'Golo Kante, you know, came to our team at the time and he's one of the best players I've ever played with. Fabulous player. You know, so from the beginning of the season, you know, he's gone in he said, right, let's just keep it the same and see what happens. Um, added N'Golo Kante to the mix and was fortunate not to have any injuries. Fortunate, fortunate not to have, you know, any suspension, anything to kind of disrupt the kind of the core of the team and how we was playing. And to be fair, Claudio had to just maintain us and, and just keep us going. You know, he's done a fantastic job with the media, just the to, to players that play it down, keep the pressure off the players in terms of we're flying high in the league. The same kind of question would always come out. Are we going to win the league? And it's so early, you know, he would just say, no, we just want to survive. You know, last season was fine relegation this season, we just want to make sure we're not in the same position. And that was his story, you know. And then once we got to the, you know, the, the magical 40 points, whatever it is, he'll say, okay, maybe we can finish in the top half. And he'll just create milestones throughout, you know, maybe we can get to Europe, you know. maybe we can get into the top six, top four. And that was fantastic. Meanwhile, the teams just going about their business on the pitch, playing well, winning games. Um, not having that pressure of um, the media and um, the challenges that come
0: with it. So much is spoken about the, the management and the players, and of course they were the, the people who delivered that success. But the, the, in the background, it strikes me you had a great ownership group um, that afforded everybody this opportunity. Talk to me a little bit about
1: their owners and your relationship with the owners. Yeah, unbelievable owners. You know the best guys I've come across. You know uh, in my lifetime, to be fair. You know what they. I think first and foremost, you know, to say they, you know, billionaires so approachable. You wouldn't think that you walk past them in the street, you would not think that cuz they'll speak to you, say hello, you know, just nice, kind-hearted people. So so you um, would as a captain you you would have it, it interacted with them you got to know yeah they were so present and I think you know that's what was unique about them I think a lot of owners a lot of clubs you probably don't see them you know from time to time they're probably never in the country and they wouldn't talk to the players they wouldn't know yeah the you'll never interact with the players where when our owners at least at the time was over from Thailand you know and that was quite regular they'll come down into the dressing room interact have a laugh um And yeah, that's what it was all about, you know, interact, make jokes with some of the players, you know, and we always would speak to him say, oh, okay, what do we want? We'll try and have, you know, um, some kind of challenges with him and uh, what do you expect from us? Uh, What do we get in return, you know, to banter? And he'd be like, just give me the win, give me the win uh, and I'll take you out. You know, little things like that or we'll go on a trip at the end of the season, whatever it might be, little incentives and... Yeah, you know, kind-hearted, generous people, and that done not just a lot for, you know, the players, but for the for the fans, for the for the city, for the community, um, with the charities, and you know everything he inputted into into the club and is in, into Leicester. You know, invested so much, not just money but time. It's fantastic seeing that. That's the type of people they were. We're sitting talking today in Manchester and of course Manchester has benefited
0: in terms of its rejuvenation from the City group presence here, which on one level has been controversial from the Abu Dhabi group. But if you look at East Manchester and uh, the regeneration in that part of the City and what good owners have done, not just to build a team of expensive players, but to build an infrastructure. I know at Leicester it's been a very similar thing, hasn't it? You've got a fabulous training ground now. I know they placed great emphasis on. And they're also massively valued youth, don't they? So tell me, do you think their legacy is going to come through these kids who are now starting to emerge from the academy there? Is that something that would have been important to them?
1: Yeah, like you mentioned, you know, um, the long-term investment. Um, they've had a vision, you know, how can we make it sustainable for Leicester to... You know, continue to compete yeah. in the Premier League, and eventually, you know, break into the top six and, and be a force to be reckoned with. And they saw a, a potential um, way to make that happen, which was the well, which which is the new training ground facility, which is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've, you're lucky enough to see it, you'll be um, you'll be shocked. It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah, incredible. it's fantastic, and. You know, the owners don't want to leave any stone unturned. You know, they, they come into something, they go 110%. And that's what they've done with this facility. And, you know, just speaking to, you know, some of the staff and some of the management, you know, they wanted something that was going to be the best facility in Europe, if not the world. Um, and that was their vision and the idea behind the training ground. And in my opinion, you know, that's what they created. Because it's absolutely unbelievable. I think there's great pride in the city, isn't there
0: now? Around the football club and around the, even though the, the fans aren't utilising the training facility, everybody you talk to when you visit is, you want to see the training facility, this is what they've
1: done for us, this is a long-term project, which I think is unusual in football. Yeah, it's incredible, you know, and um, <coughs> it's partly come from the, you know our successors when we won the, the Premier League, you know. Underdogs wasn't supposed to happen and we made something happen and I think off the back of that, you know, we're well, Leicester City is everyone's second favourite team yes. um, which is great. And you know, I think they look at the type of ownership we, we had or we have and see the type of people that, that run the club. And I think a lot of fans probably would love that to be emulated with, with their clubs. You know, the type of time and effort and investment that goes you know, beyond mm. the, the club. Investment with integrity. Exactly, you know, doing it the right type of way. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, Man- the, the City Group, you know, investing into East Manchester and um, just making facilities better for the next generation to come through. And the people, which, live is, there. which is important. Exactly. Um, and East Manchester is
0: now totally transformed from yeah. from the area that I knew uh, two decades ago, and, and that's been down to the football club, um, and it's, it's it's changed forever. So it shows the power of sport. Uh, to make those sort of changes so by this point your performance career was was coming to an end but you went out typically on a spectacular high tell me about that uh, FA Cup final
1: yeah you know um, I think my final season you know I think I have to mention you know is I kind of knew this was going to be my final season um, you know you're not playing as much uh, in the team uh, the injuries you're not recovering from as easy um, during the season anymore and yeah you know I always say you know if my body could talk it would say "Where's he needs a rest <laughs> um, so yeah you know I knew it was coming to the end and did you talk about that with Brendan Rodgers uh, yeah you know I eventually did um, you addressed it with him rather than the other way around yeah you know uh, tell me what you, you did get, you get a sense well you know when you go from not playing on the bench or not getting onto the bench and, you know, not getting into the squad and um, not being involved. You knew you, you know, your time's kind of come yeah. to an end at the club anyway. Um, I probably could have, you know, continued, but probably at a different club, um, it was probably down to me. But, you know, I'm thankful to get to 37 and, and retire, which is a long innings in, in, in football. Careful about using that word "retire" because I know you've got big plans. Well, in the yeah, I retired from one job, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, retiring from football, you know, at 37 is, is a long innings. And the the you know, in terms of my body and how it felt, you know, it definitely needed a rest. I definitely needed to come off it. And um, yeah, I had a conversation with Brendan and uh, told him, you know, this will be my final season. And for me personally, I was wanted one, one last go on the pitch yeah. to. You know, just say bye to the fans yeah, yeah, yeah. and just say bye to my, you know, and enter my football career. And I struggled all season with an injury um, from maybe January or December, you know, had a severe back issue, which I wouldn't recover from. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the lads are performing well on the pitch uh, and get, got to the FA Cup final.
0: Were uh, you still an important leader around the dressing room, though? Were you involved on a day-to-day basis?
1: Did Brendan utilise your knowledge, your experience? Yeah, I like to say, but I think there's several leaders in the, in the club. You know, there's there's this Vardy, there's Casper, you know, a couple senior guys, Johnny Evans join our team. You know, a lot of senior guys. So even though I might not have been present on match days, you know, I'm always in and around the boys in the training ground. Maybe not even on the training field, but you know, in football clubs in, in the training um, training uh, grounds meeting areas would be like the medical room, for example, uh, or the gym, you know, so I had a lot of time to interact and, you know, just check on the boys, ask things and, you know, just to make sure the mood and everything's okay within the squad. Um, so, you know, still in and around the team and just getting back to the FA Cup final, you know, just trying to, I was injured from maybe January, December to to right before the FA Cup final and I managed just to get myself just fit enough to make the squad. So I was just um, buzzing just to be involved with the team, you know, it's FA Cup final day. We were all travelling to Wembley. I was happy just to sit in the stand and just be a part of the squad um, Then I got a call from Brendan in the morning of the, the match saying, Wes, um, will you be okay to, to, to go on the bench? You know, if I need you for the last 20 minutes, are you going to be all right? And I remember thinking, I don't care, you know, I could have a broken leg, but I'm going to say yes. <laughs> so I said, yeah, of course, Gaffer, you know, um, I'm there if you need me. Um, don't worry, you know, if I have to come on whatever time, I'll be ready to go. So I've said that. Um, and I know how Brendan works a little bit. you've brought me on many times over the last few seasons uh, when the team is is winning, maybe by one goal, and he wants to see out the game. So obviously the game's happening. We go 1L up and I knew Brenda's going to look at me and think, right, where's we're going to have to bring you on to see on the game. And I was thinking, okay, I've not played in, you know, since December, you know, am I going to be okay? But yeah, you know, so the back, edge, yeah, just try and stay focused. And I remember, yeah, getting onto the pitch and then we conceded a goal. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know if I can get through extra time. You know, my body is started <laughs> to struggle already. I've been on the pitch 15 minutes. Um, so I was thinking, right. It's gonna be extra time, no 30 minutes. I'm gonna be okay. Luckily, VAR kicked in. The only time I've really like you know, celebrated VAR <laughs> and ruled the goal, the goal out, and end we ended up winning the the game. And obviously it's my final game, just to add, you know, the cherry on top of the cape, which is great. And yeah, that's my final game. And, you know, it's it's a fantastic way to to bow out after Very a long talent. career. Yeah, exactly.
0: Term. Now, we, you mentioned the word retirement before, and at VSI, Executive Education, we're always reticent to use that word because I think one of the challenges that the business of sport has, has endured over the years, and something we identified when we uh, first created our education programme, was that it was a brain drain of talent out of sport, often because players had been uh, athletes at 16, so hadn't been on the traditional pathway through education. So they were, they were funneled into either coaching or potentially managing, but typically weren't part of the strategic leadership group within the sports organization. So we started education programs with a view to delivering opportunities for athletes in particular around uh, working either as a sporting director, potentially sitting as a secretary director of, the, of a football club or of a sports club or chief executive in sport you clearly have ambitions to be one of those key strategic leaders and you signed up for the master's degree in sporting directorship that we run in partnership with the Global Institute of Sport and the University of East London. Tell me your thought process behind joining the programme and now you're nearly concluding the programme. What your your learnings have been, what your thoughts have been, what's happened?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's important for, you know, players coming to the end of the career to kind of have an idea of what they want to go into, you know, post-football. A lot of players i spoke to decided, you know, I just want a break, you know, another year or two years out. Um, I think the problem with that, you become forgotten all of a sudden and it's more difficult to try and get back into the, into the game. Um, I remember, you know, a good two, three years before I eventually retired, thinking you know, quite a lot about what, what what's my interest, what do I want to do, what do I want to go into? And I think my kind of position in the team as captain and being the bridge between the players and the senior management, uh, and being that person that would get pulled into the dressing room uh, by the players and said, we need this happening, or can you help me with this situation? And then me going to maybe the manager or the director of football, or even sometimes, you know, the the CEO, Susan, explain the trying to try and help out, you know, and vice versa. They would come to me to go to players or to, to find out how a certain situation or what's happening, how the group might feel about it. And that kind of gave me the, the a bit of a buzz in terms of, you know, I wouldn't mind this kind of role in terms of, Still helping the the team to try and win on the pitch, um, but doing it somehow off the pitch, and that's when I got interested in the Canada sporting directorship, um, director of football, um, executive kind of management areas in football uh, that I could possibly go into. You know, so a couple of years before I, you know, eventually retired, I started to do courses. So I done corporate governance um, course, and got a certificate in that. And the football and business management, you know, which is a VSI course. Uh, and I thought, right, let's just start and get some knowledge, some qualifications in that area, just to get an idea of what it's about. So I'm better prepared when I try and make the next step when I retire. Uh, and that's when I joined the, the Masters in sport Directorship course. Because I think one, one thing that we recognised as a business, we can deliver leadership skills to, to
0: multiple individuals. But what we can never deliver is the experience of walking in a player's shoes, like you have through the, the, you know, you've had ups and downs as well as the, the glorious highs at Leicester. The journey is never a straightforward one, is it? So do you think that, that that's really going to make a difference in the fact that you've got the formal qualifications, but you've also lived the life of a professional athlete so you can recognise the challenges maybe better than somebody who hasn't
1: done? Yeah, I think one thing which is, you know, a big, big plus for for me and you know, for former players is... And I probably can speak for myself actually, is, you know, I know the players, I know how they work, I know how they tick, um, I know what makes them happy, what makes them sad. And I think I'm, you know, in a great position to, you know, give advice and instruction in terms of how to, you know, manage players. Uh, so having that experience, you know, is invaluable. Um, it's the other side, you know, the business side. How does it work? How do the departments work? How does you know the finance? How does the the media? How do you balance you know recruitment? You know, all of those type of things is the side, you know. I'll have to work on and learn, which can be done, you know, over time, you know, and that's with you know learning on a course, learning, or learning on the job, you know, first hand, you know, and that's what I've I've tried to do, and so I'm pretty much have a presence still at, at Leicester, you know, in that type of aspect to, to learn from the guys there and gain that experience. But like you said, you know, the, the playing side and the players and how to manage and, and to deal with, with situations, you know, I feel like I have that already and, and that's what my, I don't know, my plus and kind of my, my main attributes are. At, at leadership level in sport, non-white people are still
0: massively underrepresented. But I, I saw some statistics that you'd highlighted in, in, in a recent media piece that there's only one black board member at a Premier League club, which seems astonishing. Um, only 10.3% senior leaders are non-white, um, 15% non-white coaches. That, that's, that's surely a, a wrong that um, we have to put right. How, how do we set about creating a more diverse boardroom
1: yeah, that's one of the, the big, big issues, you know, that I felt I would try and address along with, you know, lots of people. So I'm involved with the um, the BPAC group at the Premier League, which is the Black Players Advisory Group, um, which is a committee that's there to, you know, not just tackle discrimination and, and racism in the game, but um, see if you can create pathways to make the workforce more diverse. You know, I'm on the players' board of the the PFA. You know, and that's one of the, the the hot topics that is on the agenda that we're trying to address. How do you actually address it? How do you how do you make that change? Well, you know, there's 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 initiatives. You know, that that's in place currently. You know, you got the FA um, diversity code. You have the. Um, it's uh, falling well below targets, though. Well, yeah, you know the target. The, well, the numbers have been highlighted, um, and there's been initiatives uh, initiated to see if we can tackle that. Um, but the numbers and the the dial's not changed that much, uh, so we have to work harder. We have to work harder to you know highlight the situation. And there's a lot more noise about around it now, where I don't think before um, it was mentioned, but never. Nothing would happen, you know, from the work I've done. I know there's action being taken place and there's movement now. um, So it's going to take time. So you've really legitimised your credentials to be
0: a strategic leader in sport at at the highest level through performance, also through education, through self-learning. Is the the real solution to get more people into those boardroom positions and then get the trickle-down effect in every other uh areas sport so some more non-white people sitting the board I'm, I'm interested myself in cognitive diversity um, so you get different thoughts within the boardroom.
1: Yeah you know and you know I've studied a lot on it on my course already you know um diversity of thought equals better business better performance you know that's that's proven commercial reasons there you go that, that's that's proven but how do you get onto the board how do you sit in the positions where you can have a voice and, and make these changes. But somehow you have to get first and foremost into the room, onto the table, and that's how you're going to make real change, you know? And it's difficult because, you know, me looking at the position, there's not many, there's not much turnover in roles in those positions. You know, once you're in that type of position, it you tend to stay there for the long term, you know? So how can we make it more diverse? You know, do we create different roles? You know, and that just takes know, someone in the ballroom with, first of all, you know, the vision to see their current workforce is not right. You know, this needs to be more diverse. And secondly, you know, just the uh, um, innovation, somebody yeah, with a mindset. Yeah, just, just, just uh I don't want to say the balls, but um, <laughs> go ahead and say know, it. Someone that can really put themselves on yeah. the line and say, change needs to happen, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Because some of the people that are there on the boards in executive management been there, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, yeah. you know, they ain't going to go nowhere, you know, and that's where we just need someone, one person to say, right, you know, yeah. this is not good enough, we need it more diverse. Because the numbers, how it looks on the pitch and how it looks off the pitch is completely different, it's happy, isn't it? you know, and it, and it shouldn't be like that. And I just think that's just because <laughs> the turnover in those positions, doesn't happen often at all and the people in the positions don't want to leave you know so do we create roles yes that's the solution or, or do we open more doors for, for former athletes to come on programmes like this and other similar programmes yeah I don't think there's no short of candidates yeah, that's what I mean yeah I don't think there's no short of candidates what are you going to get in the opportunity probably not you know so do you have to look at the recruitment processes you know are they uh, bigger enough to Get more diverse um, people through the door. Who knows? You know, and uh, that's what I'm investigating at the moment. So it's it's interesting to see what the results will be. Have Leicester spoken to you about your
0: ambitions and you doing this program? Have, have they engaged with you to? You, know, you look at uh, Bayern Munich. You look at Ajax. They've both got former players
1: as their chief executives. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's you'll you'll see Oliver when when Curry. you look into it. You know. The European teams are, are much, much different to the English teams. Yeah. You know, they like to bring former players that's had success that they see as a good fit through the, through into you know the next step with you know senior management, executive management, boardroom. That would be the case, but it's not quite the same in, in England. And I made it clear, you know, before I retired, I told Leicester exactly what I, what my ambitions was and, and what the what I want to do. I said first and foremost, you know, I want to learn. Um, get the knowledge uh, and, you know, be a credible person that will be, you know, credi- credible to the organisation. And I felt that was very important. I didn't want to, you know, step to something I felt yeah. out of my depth. Yeah. You know, so I've had conversations with, with Leicester. I, I told them my kind of, my plan, short term, medium, long term, and they've been very supportive. You know, um, I'm in the club quite a lot, um, quite present, you know, and uh, I think once I've done this programme, you know, hopefully I'll be in a better position to see what's next. Um, may, might not be at Leicester, but what's next in terms of, you know, me making that next step into that area. Everything you tell me about Leicester makes me feel that they are a club that prepares a look
0: after their own but be, be innovative and different and make the bold moves. Would, would that be the case, do you
1: think? Yeah, I'd like to, to, to say so. You know, I have a close relationship with the with the CEO, um, which is Susan Whelan, and yeah. she, you know, runs the the whole organisation. Yeah, she has a great reputation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, very close to the owner as well, top. Um, so, you know, um, like I said, I think it's very important, you know, not to expect to just be giving it. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to look like a, a credible person, and that's, Got the qualifications, uh, and could do the job needed and necessary to to be able to you know help the team and help it to be successful and to further continue you know where Leicester are today. Tell me who's the most impressive leader you've encountered, whether in sport, out of sport. Um, yeah, I suppose when I was in sport, you know, when I was very young, um, I was taken uh, under. Des Walker's wing, really? Yeah, you know, and he's always been a big impact on my on my football career. Yeah. You know, because when I first came through a Forest, you know, I had the, the, probably the raw abilities yeah. um, in terms of technique and you know refining and you know the brain side of the game. You know, I was very raw, and you know, Des, he would take me aside, you know, work on with me, you know, one on one on my weaknesses. Um, he used to talk to me all the time, which was a big, big help, you know. And um, you know, having someone like him, Des Walker, who's a legend in the game, and being taken under his wing That's and being, fantastic. you know, have his tutelage. What a footballer. There you go. And now to have his tutelage, you know, is, is a big, big honour. And I still see Des today. You know, I chatted to him probably about a month ago now. Yeah. You know, and um, it's always good to catch up with him. Yeah. Finally, one last question: Where are you going to be in five years? In five years' time. Um, I'll be in an executive role in a football club, helping a football club to be successful on the pitch and using all the knowledge and experience I've gained over the years to help that team achieve goals and to to win things like uh, I did in my playing days. my my money is on you smashing it. Very, very much
0: thanks for joining us today. It's been a fascinating story. A great journey as player, and I expect this is the only start of the journey. Um, you're going to be a, a major feature at Leicester and at Premier League for many years to come.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank
0: you. Cheers. <laughs>